Welcome to Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL, a new series from the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation. In conversation with thought leaders and change makers in higher education, nonprofits, and industry, we'll explore why Atlanta is the innovation capital of the Southeast. So thanks everyone for joining us for this episode of Might Could with special guest, Ricky Hunter. Ricky is both a lifelong entrepreneur with more than 15 years in startups and small businesses and an innovation educator. He has served as education director at The Farm Atlanta, which nurtures selected startups and entrepreneurs through an accelerator program, incubator offices, and a hardware lab. Uh, was the first professor for Georgia State University's Entrepreneur uh, and Innovation Institute's inaugural class and was co-founder of Startup Exchange, a student-run organization dedicated to helping student entrepreneurs at Georgia Tech and Georgia State University turn their ideas into businesses. Uh, prior to and during these educational roles, Ricky guided early product development uh, sorry, product design at SideTech International and held founding roles in small businesses and startups like Avant Gartner, Gitnotes, and Pointivo. He most recently transitioned into a senior product manager role with Carvana's vehicle experience team. So Ricky, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, for somebody so, uh, so young, uh, you have a long and varied background in entrepreneurship and innovation. So to kick things off today, I wonder if you could talk a bit about how you first got involved in creating your earliest startups. Sure. Uh, so while I may uh, look young, uh, I, I started even younger. Um, I was 13 when I started my first, uh, my first business. It was a landscaping business. Um, before that, I had uh, you know, I would uh, go to garage sales in my neighborhood, buy some stuff and then take it to my garage, my parents' garage sale and sell it. Uh, but 13 was really the time that uh, really kickstarted my entrepreneurial journey. Um, it was interesting because when I first started, um, it was because, you know, I was 13. I wanted a cell phone. I wanted to have a car at some point. And my parents said, if you, if you want these things, you need to buy them for yourself. Um, so I, I, uh, my dad said, you know, you should start a landscaping business. I had one when I was younger, it, you know, it helped me. So you should start one. And this was interesting because I, I went out with flyers and no equipment and no customers, uh, knocked on, knocked on every door in my neighborhood and ended up with three customers. So my dad let me, uh, didn't have any equipment. So my dad let me use his old equipment, not even the equipment he used anymore, just his old stuff sitting in the garage. And he rented it to me for 50% of my revenues. Um, so I learned uh, maybe the hard way that, uh, you know, the market's tough out there and uh, you got to launch lean. And so, and I, I did. Uh, so after the first year, split my revenue with my dad. Uh, the second year I was able to buy my own equipment and then it, uh, it, uh, it went from there. Uh, so from 13 to 19, I uh, had a landscaping business that grew every year, never lost a customer, always gained a customer. And uh, while doing that, I also uh, started out as a dishwasher in a small mom and pop pizza shop, worked my way up to manager. So by the time I was 17, 18, I was running my landscaping business and still managing a small pizza restaurant while finishing high school. So I got an early introduction to, to startups uh, earlier than most, I think. Uh, so yeah, I would, I would certainly agree. It's not often uh, uh, that one of our guests starts by saying, uh, so my innovation journey really began at age 13. Uh, and rarely is that coupled with, I got a lesson in the school of hard knocks from my dad. That, that's a great startup story. Um, so uh, maybe you could tell our listeners about uh, the various startups that you've launched or worked with, because it certainly didn't stop with the landscaping business. No, that was that was just the start. It gave me the bug. Um, and in launching a small business, um, believe it or not, it's very similar to launching a tech business. Not exactly the same, but it definitely gave me um, an understanding of the fundamentals. Um, at 19, I got an internship at a digital marketing agency in Canada. Um, and I had the opportunity to do a discovery project. And through the discovery project, I kind of stumbled upon a new idea for them, kind of taking some of their old products, kind of smerging them together. Um, 
they liked it. Uh, this was before iPads, before touchscreens, and over the last decade, um, they've really pivoted that idea into a, a, a product that's used across the country, uh, across North America. So that was that was kind of, you know, that influenced me to say, hey, I should really pursue something in this field. Um, I was still young. I was still an undergrad. So after I uh, after my internship, I finished my undergrad. Actually switched from business to psychology because I thought I, I, I know business, I'm, I'm experienced in business. And, and that switch to understanding people was so key. Um, and so that switch, uh, you know, got me into uh, an MBA program to kind of further my studies. But while doing my MBA program, I needed to pay the bills. Um, and you can't, it's, it's tough to get a job with an undergrad degree in psychology. So uh, ended up uh, joining Avant Gardner. They were just a um, flower and, and, and plant um, uh, business that uh, took care of you know, shrubs and flowers for high-end residential uh, people. Uh, I had the opportunity to build and launch their maintenance side of their business um, and had customers like Tyler Perry, Al Gore, Spreckers. So we had some big names uh, and I did that during my, my MBA. Um, still trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life though. Um, while in my MBA, I pretty much participated in every single career opportunity that, that Georgia State had to offer and ended up um, at a interview, it was a fake interview that I found out later on, but ended up interviewing for a fake job at Cartoon Network and um, talking to the director of marketing and um, uh, tried to understand what are the biggest problems faced by, by Cartoon Network. We started talking and, and uh, he said something that really sparked something within me. Um, and I don't wanna get too much in the idea uh, today or maybe right now, but, uh, at that point, I realized that that was my that should be my focus. Um, so I graduated school and uh, tried to launch this business um, through customer discovery using the lean startup methods and uh, learned that it wasn't a viable business. This was eight or nine years ago. And so I've spent the last eight or nine years trying to understand various technologies to make this idea viable. Um, and that led me to while working on my idea. Uh, full-time and working full-time to pay the bills and finishing up school, um, I ended up at ATV. This was uh, before the renovation, so it was just cement floors and, and very kind of construction was still going on. Um, met a, met a uh, founder doing a, a startup in the AI natural language processing space, which I wanted to learn more about. Um, he liked my business savvy, so I, I co-founded uh, GitNotes with him. It's an intelligent transcription service. Um, that was a fun year. We got into Flashpoint, um, realized through Flashpoint that we may not have a market or we may not agree on what our, what our target market is or how to get there. Um, but during Flashpoint, uh, one of my mentors at Flashpoint was also starting the startup, actually an AI computer vision space. Um, and I also wanted to learn more about computer vision. Uh, so I joined as a, as a founding manager, first employee, and um, we launched that uh, based out of its uh, Georgia Tech PhD research, um, tried to commercialize it. My CEO, serial entrepreneur, I learned so much from him. Um, and then, so that was three years. And at the same time, I started teaching. And uh, the one thing I didn't have yet uh, was, you know, credibility and a network into the media space. And the farm came to Atlanta. Uh, it's partnered with Comcast. Um, they were looking for someone as their education director to lead the program, design the curriculum, and then run the founders through their through the accelerator program. And uh, I really wanted to uh, build my uh, network in the media space. So a lot of my decisions of joining a startup or founding a startup or, or you know, jumping into the farm was solely around putting myself in the best position to launch my startup idea when it's time. Uh, huh. So it's interesting, there are really, there are several threads there that I'd love to pick up at some point. One is that, you know, uh, one thing that seems to be common to a lot of these conversations we have at the Hatchery is that almost every guest at some point says, either in the present or past tense, I still have no idea what I want to do with my life, 
or I still at that point had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Um, but what's interesting is that's often sort of coupled with a desire to see some big idea through to fruition. And so uh, what I think so instructive about that for students who are, you know, you know, listening to this show is that, uh, you know, both can be true simultaneously. So, so often students, uh, you know, come to innovation with an idea, but uh, they come to education with this idea of what do I need to do to get what to where, you know, I'm going next. And there's an assumption that there's kind of a set or predetermined path and you have to do these steps. And I think that's partly sort of uh, the result of the way our educational system is structured, where it's all about incremental uh, and assured outcomes if you do things incrementally. Um, but it's also just kind of stage of life. And, um, you know, people will, when they're younger, think there is a way to do things if I want to get to X. And what's so cool about these conversations is that so many innovators say, no, I still want to get to X. I just have no idea how to get there yet. So I'll do this and I'll do this, and eventually I'll get the skill set to do this. So it's uh, it's less linear and more incremental uh, at the same time, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, so let's, let's maybe talk about uh, the way that that process has both educated you and made you a better educator, because that's sort of where you ended up um, with that, that response was that you were then sort of hired to lead these programs um, at the farm. So I'm wondering at what point you realized that you were maybe interested in teaching entrepreneurship and innovation uh, as interested as you were in practicing it. And then if anything sort of changed for you personally or professionally at the moment that you, you had that realization. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm not sure I ever had a, a realization that, oh man, I should be teaching. Um, at that time, so to paint some context, um, this was eight or nine years ago in Atlanta. ATV was just starting out. Um, Flashpoint had had a couple cohorts, but our uh, the ecosystem that we have today uh, is, was not the same as we had um, nine, nine years ago. In fact, uh, Hypotamus, which is now a media hub, was actually a physical space at the bottom of the Biltmore. Um, so it was a very different kind of landscape then, and especially as a as a student, it's like, what resources did we have um, to, to learn about startups? And this is when Lean was coming out. This is, this is kind of the, the, the new startup bubble, uh, the new kind of way of thinking about things was, was coming in. So, you know, how do I apply those learnings that I had from my small businesses and apply that to, to a tech business? Because um, again, it's similar, but it's, but it's different. Um, and so to, to, to learn how to do the tech uh, startup, started getting really involved in the community. Um, just building a name for myself, learning myself. But then what I realized is there's other folks like me, students that don't have these resources, that don't have access, that aren't actively in the community every day saying yes to every single event, just to go learn, build their network or, or get some information. And so that was when I met some of the folks at uh, Georgia Tech they had had one semester of startup exchange, but uh, when I came on, there was now five of us and uh, we really started growing it. We all had the same need. We had a startup idea. We were in university and there wasn't a ton of resources for us to use or, or leverage. So how do we build bridges from the university to, to um, the startup ecosystem? Now, again, this wasn't necessarily altruistic because in doing that, in building that bridge between the universities and the ecosystems, I inherently start building my credibility as an entrepreneur. Um, so now when I go to places or when I went to places, I didn't necessarily have to talk about me or my idea only. It's, well, look at what we're doing at Startup Exchange. We're, we're elevating the, the education for any student entrepreneurs that want to you know, start a business. And so that was first it was, it was fun. I enjoyed kind of bringing information to people that, that didn't have it or that wanted it. Um, leveraging some of my previous small business experience to kind of provide insight or advice to people that hadn't launched businesses before. Um, but again, it really just allowed me to, you know, be, be credible, be an expert. And then from there, um, I brought Georgia Tech startup exchange program over to Georgia State, which didn't have anything. 
that kind of snowballed into, we have an incubator program now, there's the entrepreneurship and innovation um, now, there's another innovation group. And so again, I was kind of, it, it was laid in front of me and I enjoy, I enjoy helping people. Um, I, I think that uh, a rising tide, you know, uh, makes all ship rise. So uh, the more we could kind of help each other out and build these bridges from university to, to, you know, Atlanta's ecosystem, then first the better off everyone else will be, but also the, the better I look to the community that I was able to create these, these opportunities. Um, and so it wasn't necessarily a realization that I wanted to teach, but a realization that I like helping people and I don't like talking about myself. So what are some things I could do that uh, lend to my credibility in the community? And it, it, it just so happened to be teaching. Um, I like systems, I like processes, I'm very organized and I don't mind being in front of people. So all of those things combined, um, you know, I, I became a teacher. And I, I, I say I became a teacher when I first was teaching it was me volunteering for, this has happened for three or four years. And we met at first at Georgia Tech under the stairwell. It felt like Harry Potter in the cupboard. Um, and then even at Georgia State, when we brought it over, they gave us the smallest classroom. Like it, it was, it's definitely evolved in the last few years. And so it was great to just be a part of it and, and contribute to it. Uh, this might explain why, you know, you both look and talk like an inner wizard. It was your early days beneath the staircase. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, it's funny, a rising tide lifts all ships is something that we often say too. Um, as students are trying to understand sort of the, uh, the personal and broader uh, implications of the good they can do through innovation work. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, when you look at a, a field like corporate responsibility and corporate giving, uh, a lot of it is genuinely uh, motivated by uh, wanting to support good causes. We also know that some of it is motivated by whitewashing certain activities. Um, but uh, when you're looking at the innovation space, it's much harder to, I think, disentangle the benefit to the self from the benefit, the kind of the, the general public benefit of doing this kind of work. Um, and I think that's a real upside uh, that's worth selling to people that want to get in, into innovation. In an educational context, it's also interesting to note that you talked really about interdisciplinarity. You talked about, in a way, intermodal thinking, the building of networks and communities. And ultimately, as you started to define kind of communal needs for others, uh, you were taking care of needs in your own environment and in your own kind of professional trajectory too. I think there's a great lesson there. Um, that's cool already within the context of building the program at the farm and uh, some of the work you did in these two universities. But I'd also sort of like to put it in the context of the bigger Atlanta ecosystem too. Um, you know, there's Atlanta is is both really a national business center and a truly international city, um, and its economic and demographic and cultural diversity are are really driving change throughout this part of the country and, and the world. What do you see as the really unique attributes of the city that have impacted your work as an innovator and an entrepreneur? So there's a, a couple things that I think really differentiate us. Um, our universities are great, uh, and not just Georgia Tech and Emory. Uh, we've got other universities, uh, Kennesaw's entrepreneur program is, is doing great. Uh, Georgia State's got a few programs now. And then all of our HBCUs are really starting to uh, jump on the innovation and uh, into innovation entrepreneurship. So our university system that we can tap into is, is, is really nice. Um, it's, and, and most importantly, it's diverse. So you don't just have all the same ideas coming out all the time like you might in um, like Boston, maybe it's a solely focused on heavy sciences and heavy healthcare space. You know, Atlanta has this diversity of thought, this diversity of, of startup uh, kind of ideas and sectors. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that, you know, we can have this diversity because the, the corporations that we have here that, that call it home are, are here to support startups as well. And so, you know, we have 
fintech. What do, what do we have? We have Cabbage and, and Greenlight now are just crushing it. But it's not just fintech, right? We've got a SaaS enterprise with uh, Calendly and Sales, Sales Loft just now over a billion. But these are the recent ones. Before a decade ago, we had, you know, internet and, and security systems. And then even before that, we had all these large corporations in Delta, UPS, uh, NCR. So all these, and the great thing about it, at least from my perspective, maybe it's the same in other cities, but it's so collaborative. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want help, no one steals, no one steals your idea. Like they want to help you. They want to point you in the right direction. Um, so it's just that, that willingness for, you know, at least, like take the farm, for example, Comcast is willing to meet with all these teams and all these founders and help guide their entrepreneur journey. And we're just the one that's, you know, going on today before Comcast, there was others, there was the, uh, the AT&T uh, Innovation Lab, um, uh, NCR, I think has an innovation lab. So all these corporations are looking to, to give back. But then we have the university students and we have the, the diverse group of folks coming up with the ideas. Um, so it's not just tech, right? Coming out of uh, some of uh, our, you know, Georgia State, for example, a lot of the innovation is around uh, Main Street ideas, not so much tech. So this kind of melding of ideas, um, I think is so key. You don't have everybody thinking the same way. Not everything has to be AI. Not everything has to be put on the blockchain. So when we have this kind of, uh, you know, just for thinking, coming together and uh, and sharing and collaborating, I think is what's gonna what's gonna elevate us the most. And then yeah, of course, you know, what else? Why is Atlanta so unique? Our airport, the ability to get anywhere really easy. Well in the past, hopefully in the future too, right. but the yeah. ability to just hop on a plane and you're in anywhere in the U.S., no problem that day. Um, mm-hmm. It's just unlike many of, the, many of the other cities. Right, yeah, that sort of same day travel to service really important business needs is something that I've heard often. Um, you know, you just pointed out uh, sort of the diversity of markets in which the city plays. And it's true that, um, you know, many cities or regions are defined by being leaders in a space, right? When you say Silicon Valley, you know what you mean. When you talk about Boston uh, and, you know, to your point, all the sort of medical and pharmaceutical, uh, uh, well, pharmaceutical in New York, New Jersey too. And, and so, you know, there are areas that have very specific uh, reputations part of what makes Atlanta so unique is this diversity. And, you know, you, you spoke of, you know, uh, SaaS and FinTech, internet security systems. And of course you could add, uh, you know, transportation, which was one of the earliest things that really uh, built Atlanta and government and uh, construction, uh, healthcare and biomed media. Um, there are just so many things it's known for. Um, and it's interesting because for innovators and entrepreneurs, it's a real advantage, but for the city, it can be tough. I remember hearing um, Alex Gonzalez, who was uh, at the time chief innovation officer for Metro Atlanta Chamber, speak about this city having such a vibrant innovation ecosystem, but that the flip side of that can be a brand problem. Um, and to sort of paraphrase what he was saying is the leaders uh, or the city is a leader in so many different sectors that it may not receive enough credit for driving innovation in any one of these. So I'm curious, um, you know, if you, if there are any particular uh, sectors where Atlanta's innovation and entrepreneurship efforts, you believe really deserve to be known around the world. And, and what do you think we can all do collectively to help build that reputation? So I'm biased, of course, uh, given my, uh, my media idea. Um, so I believe, you know, even without my media idea, hopefully, that we will be the media hub. Uh, given our, our, we have what, the largest, one of the largest uh, gatherings of video game creators, uh, maybe in the country or the world. Uh, we've got VR uh, everywhere in Atlanta, but certainly at the CMII at Georgia State. Uh, we've got film. Uh, coming in all the time through Asante Bradford, and we have music, loads and loads of music. So uh, as digital media kind of takes over traditional media and VR and AR starts to become more mainstream, uh, I think we are positioning ourselves very well to really capture the, we, to be the media hub of, of the world. 
Um, there's just too many opportunities outside of just technology that, that bring media folks to Atlanta. Um, and I think if we continue on this trajectory that, that it, it's only a matter of time before we're the media hub. Interesting. Yeah, that's, um, there are so many pieces to that puzzle, uh, but I've not heard many people stitch those different uh, types of media together into that kind of argument. Uh, some would argue that, you know, recent changes uh, at Turner have been sort of a, uh, a step back against some of those ambitions, but I think you're right that there's a bulk uh, of work happening here now in so many different media fields. It's an interesting take. But imagine now that, uh... And maybe is Turner struggling? If Turner's struggling, are they going to turn to other opportunities for, for media and, and ideas? We, we, have a, we have a ton of startup ideas in the media space, in VR, in AR, in video games. So if they need to innovate, uh, we have a collection of ideas to start pulling from and to start you know, piecing together what the new media will look like. And sure. if you know anybody there, I've got the idea to, to do that. Right, right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Just so happens, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, but it's interesting, you know, it's not that that, uh, that Warner Media, as it's now called, is going away. It's that certain types of positions are migrating to West Coast or, but I, to your point, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a reverse migration later uh, because... Uh, and 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 some of the talent that's leaving is is just staying, and there's just still this wealth of uh, local media talent. Um, I'm I'm curious. I'd like to shift gears just slightly. You know, within this ecosystem, what experiences and resources would you encourage other you know kind of budding innovators and entrepreneurs to seek out? So first, if you're a university student your university probably has free resources. Go and take advantage of every single free resource that you can. Um, because after you get out of school, those resources typically are no longer free. Um, Emory, you guys have a great program. Georgia Tech has a great program. So um, if you're in a university, and, and every other university is coming up with, with new programs. So if you're in a university, take advantage of the, the free um, offerings they have. Well, uh, right, because once you're out of school, your father charges you 50%. Even when you're in school, if you're my <laughs> father. Uh, but, you know, it's so, it's interesting because so many times we'd receive applications into the farm from Emory students, from Georgia Tech students um, that are have a year or two left of school, but want to give up a percentage of their business to come join, join our program. Um, when, you know, all they have, they did a hackathon and they have an app that they put together and they think they're ready for, for a, an accelerator. And we're going to take equity and you're going to, you're going to have to do a lot of things that you may not think you need to do. But if you would go to uh, the university's free resources, you'd learn a lot of the things you're going to learn through our program um, just for free. Um, and also another great resource if you're a student is go work for someone else's startup go make mistakes because you will on someone else's dime and let them pay you to do it um, because you're gonna you're gonna mess up and so hopefully you're not paying yourself to, to make those mistakes sure um, and so beyond the free resources um, ATV Atlanta Technology Village is a is a great place to be um, I think they do charge but then they do offer a lot of it's a very collaborative place so there's like official, learning tracks there but then also you'll learn a lot just by being there and everyone else kind of in the same boat as you working on similar things uh that kind of uh cross-pollination is really good for for learning um atdc is one of my favorites um it's been here for i don't know 40 years it's the consistently ranked top 10 incubator in the world um and the way they do it is Early on, you have free resources. And then if you start doing well, then you, you pay a little bit or you might even get a scholarship. Anyway, they, uh, they take you from beginner and then they lead you through the entrepreneurial journey, ultimately ending up in their signature program, which is what uh, Pointivo was for a little while. It's just such a great place to early on, once you've got product market fit, to take it from product market fit into your first few customers, it's a great place to work out of for a couple of years. Um, there's the Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Uh, that's brand new and up and coming. 
Um, so I know they're redesigning their program and really focused on um, minority entrepreneurs. And same with Goody Nation. Um, now, I'm not sure they take equity, but I think they might charge for these programs. Uh, of course, you have the accelerator programs like The Farm and Techstars. Um, if you're further along, you know, you definitely want to look at Engage with Blake Patton. Um, they're doing some great things over there, but they're looking for people that have, you know, a million dollars in revenue. So you got to be a little bit further along. Um, and, and then if you're not a university student, if you're a corporate folks trying to come back and, and be innovative, mentor at the farm or tech stars, come in and, and, and become a mentor or a catalyst and leverage your industry expertise. You may not be super familiar with startups, but you know an industry better than the entrepreneurs. So can you come in and mentor or be an advisor before jumping into your own startup? And so that's what I encourage kind of executives to look at uh, before they just jump into their ideas. Well, can you get a better feel for what startups are? Can you mentor one? Um, just so you know uh, what startup life is like. Um, I mean, that's, that's all great advice. I think it's a great compendium of resources for people that want to get involved. But I really like that last comment because uh, too often experience can be the enemy of experimentation. Um, and, uh, you know, if you come at it from years of industry experience, it's easy to miss that today's solution might look very different than uh, what has been a best practice that you're familiar with. So um, I think that's an interesting way uh, to give back and uh, learn something at the same time, kind of to go back to our earlier comment about building your own skill set as you give to others. Yep. Um, so I'd like to change gears quickly one more time to kind of talk about innovation itself. And uh, there's often this common misconception that innovation is about the big idea, the kind of aha moment, when in fact so much of the work is about process uh, from careful customer discovery and crafting a good problem statement on the micro level to kind of ensuring the alignment of strategy, metrics, resources, culture at the macro. What do you see as some of the biggest keys to success and in innovation? And then if we were to change that question to focus just on entrepreneurship, would that answer, would that answer change? You know, so when you talk about innovation, um, I think of creating something new, novel, different. Um, that can lead to entrepreneurship, meaning starting a business, if that cool thing, that shiny object that you just created is demanded by a customer. So it's only innovative if, if a customer uses it and uh, it, it works and, and it solves the problems that they have better than any of the other solutions. And only when that happens could we even think to start commercializing that innovation. Um, so for me, whether it's innovation or entrepreneurship, it all starts and ends with the customer. So your customer interactions, as you put it from careful customer discovery, but even as you move into the macro level of operations, uh, we're still should be hyper vigilant about our customers and how we're interacting with them. So for example, if I have an idea, uh, I wanna get some discovery and understand if this idea is demanded. Then I want validation beyond just their opinion. Will they change their behavior to move towards me? Um, but then let's assume we have product market fit, uh, like at Carvana, we, we have product market fit. Um, but we still need to understand our customers and we still measure customer interaction. Hey, how does this experience that they're having right now, how does this compare to previous experiences we put in front of them? So we're always experimenting through customer interaction. And if you take the time to listen to your customers, they're gonna always give you the answers that you need. Um, but the one thing I think is key would be removing your ego. Um, and this is super duper hard um, because even when you're aware of it, it's still hard, uh, especially in entrepreneurship, because you have to be confident and your ego has to tell you, yeah, I'm doing something right. No one else can. I've got this innovative idea. But also you have to be receptive if someone says, no, that's not a good idea. Well, you can't just automatically discount them because they don't they don't see the vision that I see, but you you need to listen to them because they're ultimately the ones that are going to be buying and using your product. And so this kind of balance of managing that ego and, and understanding uh, 
you know, are, do customers authentically care about what I'm building? Um, and only can only after understanding that can we really start to drive innovation, which leads to entrepreneurship. So it's interesting at this point that uh, there, you know, I always like to ask people uh, who do the work carefully and who really, you know, make sure they put the customer at the center and do their discovery and their problem definition and assure, you know, kind of product market fit, what processes they find to be especially helpful. But I'm going to spend the question, I'm going to ask you that, but I'm also going to ask you uh, what processes are helpful as an innovator to manage your ego? because it could be a different set of processes, but ultimately you're right. I mean, that kind of finding that balance of being confident, but receptive is a tough one to, to balance. Um, so, you know, are there processes on both those fronts, working with customers and working with yourself that you think are useful? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think with, with in, in respect to both, kind of just assuming you know nothing about your customers, I think is step one. Mm -hmm. And as you start to learn about your customers um, through different processes, so the way I that I always lean, 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 how lean can you be? How can you put something, the smallest thing in front of them to get the reaction? Um, but then it goes beyond lean and starts to or leverages the lean method and starts to grow. Um, so we have a business model and I, I like the business model canvas. We have to have a starting point. So I'm saying tools that I've used, but I never force tools on people. It's more about uh, using it correctly than finding the right tool. And uh, let me spend a second on that because it goes back to the, the confidence thing. So if I'm a university student, I see that uh, Steve Blank says I need to go out of the building and talk to people. Here's the questions I need to ask. So I go out and do that. And I ask 100 people these questions and I get my answers and they, uh, 80, 80 of them say they want my product and they love it. Um, well, I just talked to 100 people. And if I didn't talk to them correctly, I've just biased all of my data. And so understanding how to use the process correctly is more important than finding the right tool. Um, so I use the business model canvas and then I love the value proposition design book. Hmm. Um, and then there's, there's a new one. Uh, the next step for that is testing business ideas. So these three books take you from mapping out your idea to understanding your customer or giving you a framework to understand your customer and then to test your ideas with your customers. Now, what's great about this is these tools, I think, inherently force you to start to tease apart what your assumptions are. So when you start putting your ideas into these frameworks, you could start checking your own ego. Do I know this or is this an assumption? Is this an important assumption? Is this critical or is this not important? How do I know this assumption to be true? So asking some of these uh, kind of self-reflecting questions about you know, your business and how you're building your business, I think inherently starts to check your ego. Um, but I also recommend in the same path of launching lean is we need to start again, understanding how to use these tools from a psychological uh, or behavioral economics level. And so talking to talking with humans and testing with humans are two great short books. And you can find them if you Google, you know, free PDF talking with humans, free PDF testing with humans. Those are great ones, but the ones you'll hear most often, those are just short ones. The ones you hear most often are Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman. You're Predictably Irrational with Dan O'Reilly. Uh, Immunity to Change, which some people haven't heard of, but what we learned about in Flashpoint. And, um, and then lastly, it's not quite um, personal, but I think it's, it, it provides great context into human behavior is Crossing the Chasm. Because, hey, you've got something innovative. Oh, wow, I've got some customers. Well, yeah, 10% of the market always buys the newest, shiniest thing. And so when somebody comes out newer and shinier, you're losing that customer base and you haven't actually crossed the chasm. So leveraging some of these kind of pretty much books that talk about your own cognitive biases, uh, I think is so key as you're starting to build your business. Because if you don't understand your own cognitive biases, you're going to build in your own biases as you go through these processes that you think you're doing correctly, but ultimately 
you've done it incorrectly, which means you don't have product market fit like you think you do. Oh, I think you're muted. This sort of inherent bias is something that's been getting a lot of attention lately because of the number of systems that are starting to be governed by AI. And it's becoming clear over time that those biases are built into the, the governing AI as well. And we're just going to replicate uh, our current human problems at a bigger scale. Exactly. Uh, so it's, uh, it's an interesting set of resources. Um, and there, I think when we publish this uh, episode, we'll want to you know, publish both the catalog of local resources and uh, books that, uh, that you mentioned. Um, you know, thinking fast and slow, to your point, it's, it's one that many people know and for good reason, right? Um, it really is a useful uh, useful way to think about some of these problems. Yeah. So uh, uh, one last question for you, and then I'd like to open it up to the audience to ask questions of their own. Um, but I wonder if you could talk about a time when you were able to apply some of these processes to create a broader, more systemic change, either within your workplace or the world beyond that, that you're really proud of. Well, so, I, you know, I, I feel like I, that's all I, all I do. Um, so I just started at uh, Carvana seven weeks ago and already built a build, measure, learn product rollout strategy. So as we start, to, so I have, I just started and I already have a backlog of products waiting to be released to my customers. Um, but there's some concerns like, does it work? Can I give you feedback? Uh, what happens if it breaks? And so now what I've done is I've built a process that enables us to release with a small group, get feedback, gives us time to make any changes necessary. We release with a larger group, get their feedback and make any changes necessary. And then we can roll it out completely. But by building this iterative feedback loop, it enables us to better understand uh, what our customer wants and how important it is to them. Um, and so, you know, I do it at, at Carvana. Um, I was really proud of what kind of transpired at, at Georgia State. I don't want to take credit for it, but I started just trying to help students and um, it, it really started to evolve. And then what's great is other people see you work in these processes. And this is, I think, critical to any kind of startups is if you start and you start serving your customers, other people that are interested in that same vision or mission will start joining you. And we'll start helping you. And what you find is other people are trying to solve this problem. And so you partner with them or you leverage the resources that they have. Um, but, you know, this, this kind of lessons learned uh, process is built almost into everything that I do now. Um, and yeah, going back to some of these books, I remember when I first started learning this kind of thinking uh, through Flashpoint. And it was tough for me because you're really like, changing the way you think. And you're building in these feedback loops in your own mind of, is this my own bias? Is, am, I, am I doing this for some, some reason that's you know, beyond what I, what I really understand? And so having a very tight kind of process that allows you to launch something small, um, have expectations of, of what's gonna happen, but then being open to you know, those expectations not necessarily being met um, and then still having time or energy to make adjustments as necessary. So, I, I, yeah, I do it all the time, I think, now without even thinking about it. Like when I came into Carvana, I was, why don't we have this? We need to, we need to build this. And I built it. They're like, oh, yeah, we, we do need that. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's the greatest validation when somebody says, well, sure, you know, yeah, I, exactly. why didn't we have this whole along? Um, exactly. And then they start so, calling you or emailing you. When can I get that? I need that. Yeah, yeah, you right. do. Yeah, <laughs> you're like, well, I'm three days in. Yeah, uh, exactly. When your production timelines become unrealistic, uh, another sign of success, right? Exactly, exactly. So, um, well, so at this point, I would like to open this up to questions from the audience. So I would encourage you to please put questions in the chat. Um, I'm just going to say, as we uh, wait for people to type, that um, you know, this idea of building this lessons learned process into everything uh, is something that I definitely need to apply to my parenting uh, because I seem to commit the same mistakes over and over and over. You know, yeah. uh, maybe, maybe there are just those areas where it, it, the system breaks down. 
Um, are you measuring and learning? Because you just can't keep doing it. You've got to learn from what's happening. Right, right, exactly. Um, what I'm learning is that I'm constantly being outsmarted. <laughs> that might be a different problem. <laughs> Here's one question. Uh, someone who says, uh, you've worked with so many different startups. What's the number one avoidable, avoidable mistake that early stage founders make and how do you avoid it? Oh yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I would, I hate to go, I don't want to go back to ego. So let's say this, avoid the hype. Um, it's, it's not all about how much money you raised. It's not about, you know, offense, jumping on a, a podcast. It's really being hyper-focused on your customer and their problem for er, when you're in early stage. Um, and so if you start getting excited about, oh, I raised some, if we're celebrating money raised, is that really the fundamentals of love launching your business? Mm -hmm. We've got to celebrate what it actually means to validate a business model and start to grow it. So we should be celebrating, hey, I talked to a customer and then they signed up, or I talked to a customer and they referred me to somebody. I talked to a customer and then they bought my product. Like these are the things that we should be looking to do. It's customer, are they going to buy it and instead of, oh, I, you know, I talked to Mark Cuban or I was on Shark Tank or all these things that um, are kind of startup theater and, mm -hmm. and which is, is tough because even at the farm, we had a little bit of startup theater because Comcast wants to show that these, these founders are great. Um, but in my opinion, we need to get hyper-focused. Like it's not about those pitches and it's not about demo days. It's about generating revenue from your customers. Interesting. Um, you know, now I sort of thought that in terms of the hype piece, that being on the podcast today was the apotheosis of your career. But it is. I'm going to put it on my LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, and uh, let's also circle back. I want you and I to start the uh, startup theater group or troupe. Uh, I think that would uh, that would be as good as Second City. So yeah, um, we could. Here's a question. Uh, someone asks, uh, would you uh, mind sharing what role Carvana is playing in your learning journey? I think that's an interesting way of framing it. Yeah, I like it. I, I really like it. So um, I took the role of Carvana for a few reasons, but certainly to continue my learning journey. So up until this point has been largely smaller startups. Um, the farm was a little bit different because we were so co uh, closely connected with, with Comcast, but ultimately we we're still a startup. Um, so actually I have never had, this is my first time in a large publicly traded, well, any publicly traded company. And so I was actually really excited about the opportunity to learn what does a product, product, uh, creation and development and release look like at scale. And so I, I mean, we've released products before, but it was to a few customers at once. This is, you know, we have one product or, you know, I'm rolling out new features every other week to, to two to 500 people um, and managing, you know, various silos. So this corporate journey was more for me learning a little bit more about how corporations function uh, in hopes that one day my idea is a little bit bigger and not just an early stage idea. And I have a little bit better understanding of how to run product and, and manage a large, a larger amount of people. It's interesting. Uh, the extent to which you've drawn this thread throughout the conversation of, uh, you know, each role is an opportunity to acquire another set of skills. I bet if we were to push a little on that answer, uh, there is still a link between that and the big idea that someday you want to launch. There, you know. So don't tell Carvana, but hopefully this gives me a little more free time. Um, working in a, a corporate job, it's a nine supposed to be a nine to five. I'm not quite there yet, but I have some assumptions that it'll give me more free time to work on to work on my idea it's very hard i do want to say I, I mentioned you know interning or working at another startup it's near impossible to work full-time in a startup while also trying to start your startup and mm -hmm. as a ceo or founder of the startup you're working at they don't really want you working they want you solely focused on on their idea and what they're doing yeah. um so just just 
you know, be, be smart about where you go to work. And if you want to continue working on your idea, make sure you have time for it. Cause uh, I know when I was working at Pointivo, I was working you know, 70, 80, hundred hour weeks sometimes. So that's not enough time to, you know, spend dedicated on your own idea. Interesting. Uh, you know what they say about assuming. So I'm going to circle back in a year and see how much time you've got on your Yeah, head. exactly. Let me know. Pretty successful start. Yeah. So, <laughs> what you may learn about scaling is something very different than what you think. You'll, you'll be scaling your own work week, I think. Exactly. Um, so one last question. Uh, someone says, you, you definitely seem like you're a big time learner. And they're curious about the people you consistently learn from and how you've identified the right people to consistently learn from. Oh man, another great question. I guess I should have brought this up. So I have been very fortunate in finding mentors, advisors, I don't know, uh, guides to, to, to uh, join. So, uh, you know, I joined Pointivo. I got to work under, you know, Dan Prairie, who is a serial entrepreneur, a catalyst. I mean, he's done everything. And so as soon as I found out the opportunity to work with him, I, I took it. It wasn't, the pay wasn't that great. Uh, the work was crap. Uh, it was a lot. Um, but the learning I got from him was, was amazing. Um, at the farm, when I found out I was working with Barunda Prince, uh, what, a, what a dynamic and, and wonderful leader to learn from. Very different than, than Dan. And so I try to find folks that I can really learn from that I could even work under, even if that means, you know, not doing exactly what I want, but uh, in service of learning from someone else, I, I, I would pick that. Um, and I'm actually kind of missing that at Carvana. I don't have that standout leader that I know I can learn from. Um, so not, not terrible. Um, I would like to have that. Um, but I feel like now is an opportunity for me to learn other things. Uh, but yeah, finding that that advisor, the person that's been there before, and following them around like a like a puppy dog, uh, it worked out well for me. So if you can find those individuals and and give up some of your time to do that, then I would. That's what I would encourage. It's interesting that you've found those people primarily in more of a startup sort of environment, uh, and I can't help but wonder if it goes back to. Uh, what we talked about before, which is helping other people in those sorts of environments helps you. Um, and, you know, mentoring other people uh, in those environments as a way of growing your own expertise. Uh, and of course, in a corporate setting, you have a whole host of different uh, sort of priorities that you're trying to service as a, as a leader in an organization of, of size. Um, well, Ricky, this was really a fun conversation. I think you highlighted a ton of great local uh, resources and research uh, resources for everyone listening today. Uh, so I want to thank you for joining the show. Wish you the best um, with your, your new career at Carvana. Uh, and I'll definitely check in in six months. I got a, I got a sneaking suspicion you're going to be managing a lot of things uh, really soon, which is a good thing. <laughs> At the end of the day so it's a great thing as long as uh, i can still follow my vision right excellent well thanks so much for joining us and good luck thank you shannon it's been a pleasure have a good day you too thanks thanks for joining us for this episode of might could stories of innovation in the atl to hear additional episodes, search Might Good Stories on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about The Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.